The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 70. Wow, we are up to 70. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. I hope you're all doing well and staying safe and well and relatively sane as this quarantine gets us into, I don't know, month 532. I don't know how long it's been. Seems like forever, but uh, the information and the changes and the labor and employment developments continue to move us forward, keeping us busy and uh, keeping these things all, I guess, exciting, right? I mean, the more things change, the more there is for us to analyze and talk about. Otherwise, we'd probably get even more stir-crazy. So, but say what you want. Um... Throughout this quarantine and during this pandemic, some government agencies are rolling up their sleeves and staying more active than others have been. The United States EEOC is certainly one of those. Last Thursday, May 7th, 2020, the EEOC again updated their guidance on employment considerations under Title VII, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, Uh, and other EEO laws as it pertains to the COVID-19 pandemic. So much has been talked about when it comes to, you know, the new federal laws for paid sick leave, FMLA, the PPP loans, and we will certainly continue to talk a lot about that here on the podcast. But it's equally important, I think, to keep in mind the anti-discrimination, anti-harassment, anti-retaliation obligations that employers have. It's so important to make sure that your employees, particularly your managers and supervisors, understand how those policies continue to apply, maybe even a little bit more in the current circumstances. There are two big areas that we're talking about here. One is when it comes to decisions about who are we going to let go, who are we going to furlough, as well as who are we going to rehire and when, and how are we going to treat our workforce when they come back. And then the second batch deals with accommodation requests. You know, it's one thing for a governor in your state to say, well, we're going to allow businesses to reopen on X day and us all thinking that, well, everyone's going to come back on day one and we're going to blink our eyes like none of this happened, I really think it's important to understand that the psychology aspect of this is probably going to linger a lot longer than the physical aspect. In other words, sure, many of us, whether in staggered schedules or ultimately all of us, uh, will be able to return physically to the workplace. But the psychology, the fear that people will have about returning to public, returning to the workspace, getting there if they're in a jurisdiction that relies heavily on public and mass transit, the psychology of all of this, 
I think is going to be something that all organizations, all HR and legal teams need to be cognizant of when you're making decisions and when you are engaged in your return to work planning. So we'll get into all of that, and uh, I am going to have another episode in the next week or so that's going to talk a little bit more about planning and how can we avoid what will likely be the big claims, the big legal claims and lawsuits to come out of this. But what I wanted to do in today's episode is to offer highlights from the EEOC's new guidance, uh, how they address and answer some questions that all of you have been asking. Well, their most updated guidance is broken down into seven categories, categories A through G. And as I said, I wanted to give you a little bit of a summary of what those are, and hopefully this will answer a lot of your questions. So the first category, category A, uh, addresses issues on disability-related inquiries and medical examinations, medical testing that employers are thinking of doing. So question number one that the EEOC addresses is how much information can you as an employer actually request from an employee who calls in sick? You want to make sure that you're protecting the rest of your employees during this pandemic. You also perhaps want to get a sense of whether this employee has a particular condition that might prompt other action, maybe even other leave-related obligations. So how much information can an employer request? Well, during a pandemic, and the EEOC relies a lot on the fact that this is a pandemic. In other words, much of the guidance, many of the things that uh, employers may be permitted to do and request uh, during this pandemic might not be things that employers can do and request outside of the pandemic situation. So a lot of this guidance may change as the months go on and as things hopefully improve out there in the world. But for the moment, assume that everything we're talking about here in this guidance is really um, related to what employers can and can't do, should and shouldn't do during this particular pandemic. So first off, the EEOC confirms that employers during the pandemic can ask employees if they are experiencing symptoms of the virus. And for COVID-19 in particular, those symptoms, according to the CDC, are fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath, sore throat, a new loss of smell or taste, uh, as well as gastrointestinal problems such as diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. So employers really should continue to be aware of what the CDC is saying and uh, how often the CDC is updating its best practices and its guidance because that will drive a lot of what employers should be doing. Um, but at the moment, uh, employers can ask employees if they're experiencing those specific symptoms, certainly during the pandemic. A big question that the EEOC addressed in its guidance centers on testing. First, when it comes to temperature taking, a big topic of discussion, the EEOC confirms still that, again, in the situation that we're in, uh, in this pandemic, 
employers are allowed to take an employee's body temperature even though it is a medical examination uh, because the CDC and state and local health authorities have acknowledged that COVID-19 can be spread throughout the community uh, employers are allowed to take body temperature a uh, couple of things you should be aware if you were going to do that and there's probably a longer list of considerations but the top two that come to mind number one some people who have COVID-19 do not necessarily have a fever the flip side of that is also true some people who have a fever uh, may not have COVID-19 that may not be the reason why they have a fever so while you are permitted to take a temperature and at the moment the uh, I guess accepted threshold temperature is 100.4 degrees while you are able to take temperature uh, you don't want to rely on that as your end-all be-all for whatever decisions you're making whether it's allowing employees in or keeping employees out uh, if you're keeping employees out you may have to have some flexibility uh, in terms of how long they have to stay out depending on how long they may have a fever or what other reasons may have prompted the fever. Uh, and likewise, for those employees who are still coming in because they did not have a temperature above 100.4, uh, that doesn't mean that you should just fail to have all kinds of other social distancing and cleaning protocols. Beyond temperature taking, employers also have been asking whether they can actually give a COVID-19 test to their employees before allowing them to enter the workplace. And for the same reasons, the EEOC has said that in this current pandemic, yes, an employer can choose to administer COVID-19 testing to employees before they come into the workplace to determine if they in fact have the virus. The same caveats though apply as I just said, to temperature taking. Uh, and certainly you want to make sure that the tests are accurate, that the tests are reliable, and that the process by which you are testing these employees, either for the virus or uh, for temperature, um, are done consistently and not in a discriminatory manner. So we move to uh, category B in the EEOC's updated guidance and that deals with uh, the treatment of any medical information that you might get and particularly on the confidentiality and privacy front. So if you are going to require employees to have their temperature taken either because you are administering it as the employer or you are requiring that employees uh, self-check at home, the question is are you allowed to maintain a log of the results? The answer, according to the EEOC's guidance, is yes, you can, but obviously you need to maintain the confidentiality of that information. You cannot keep it together with the rest of an employee's personnel file. It has to be kept in a separate confidential file, uh, separate from the regular personnel file or other employment-related documents. Um, you also want to give some consideration as to whether in the first place you want to keep logs of the test results. Maybe you don't want to, for example, uh, record and maintain what the actual temperature was. Maybe you want to just note that the employee either tested above the threshold temperature 
or below the temperature. Or maybe you don't want to record any of it at all. You're just going to note it in real time and let the employees come into the workplace or not, depending on what their temperature was. Um, whatever your particular consideration is, the bottom line for EEOC guidance purposes is that if you are going to maintain a log of testing results, uh, you do have to maintain confidentiality. When it comes to disclosing the identity of an employee, uh, if that employee is uh, testing positive for COVID-19, certainly best practice is that you don't want to identify those individuals to coworkers. Uh, depending on your situation, depending on the position that that employee had and the proximity of that individual to other coworkers, you might want to think about structuring a communication that advises coworkers that they may have been in contact with the individual. Now, again, uh, that risk is certainly lessened as most, if not all, of your folks are going to be working from home. But to the extent that we are in a situation where people are starting to return to work, but at that point, somebody then tests positive for COVID-19. You want to balance giving some information to people around that individual so that they could take necessary precautions, while on the other hand, protecting the privacy and the confidentiality of that person who did test positive. On the other hand, if an employer uh, needs to or wants to disclose the name of an employee to a public health agency when it learns that the employee has COVID-19. According to the EEOC, uh, that answer is yes, an employer can disclose the name to a public health agency. Category C deals with hiring and onboarding. So much of the discussion is about current employees, employees who are returning to work, but what about those who we're onboarding who have not yet started their employment, but now we're still in the hiring process. How does all of this play out? Well, the EEOC and its guidance addresses some of those questions as well. Uh, first question, if the employees and uh, uh, employer is hiring, engaged in the hiring process, is it allowed to screen applicants for symptoms of COVID-19, just as it is allowed to do so uh, for its current employees? And the answer is a consistent yes to that, as long as a conditional job offer has made. So when it has been made. So when it comes to hiring and onboarding questions, it really does become a matter of timing. You are not necessarily allowed to engage in testing of all of your applicants, but you can do so. You can screen job applicants for COVID-19 symptoms. You can make a medical exam or a medical inquiry related to COVID-19 after you have made a conditional offer of employment. Again, though, same caveats apply to the extent that you're making some type of employment-related decision based on those screenings and those testings. Again, some people with COVID-19 do not have a fever, do not test positive for certain symptom-based screening. So keep that in mind. What about withdrawing a job offer? What about delaying the start date uh, when it comes to COVID-19 or related symptoms? Well, certainly when it comes to delaying the start date for an applicant who you discover has COVID-19 or even certain symptoms that may be associated with COVID-19, the EEOC allows you to delay the start date based on the simple reason that, again, those who have it should not be in the workplace. 
going further than delaying their start time when it comes to withdrawing a job offer the answer is yes as well you can withdraw a job offer in a situation where you need the applicant to start immediately in other words you can't delay the start of the applicant and that individual uh, does have COVID-19 or certain symptoms that are associated with it in those cases the employer may withdraw the job offer however and this is going to be a common theme as well what happens when uh, you have an individual who is in a certain category maybe the individual is 65 years old or older maybe the individual is pregnant and that puts them at a higher risk for COVID-19 can you as the employer simply withdraw a job offer or postpone the start date for that applicant that new hire because the individual is in that higher risk category the answer is no the CDC has certainly identified those individuals who may be at a higher risk but that does not in and of itself justify unilaterally postponing the start date or withdrawing a job offer that had been given you can and should engage probably in an accommodation uh, related discussion maybe you're going to allow uh, telecommuting for some time uh, or if the individual himself or herself would like to postpone the start date but you really should be avoiding unilateral decisions based solely on a perception that an individual needs something because he or she is in a higher risk category and that's true when it comes to uh, returning employees to work. It's true really when making any kind of employment related decisions. You know, on the one hand, managers, HR individuals are trying to do the right thing in many cases. And they're saying to individuals who are in these higher risk categories, we're not going to allow you to come into work because you are over 65 because you are pregnant because we believe you have this underlying medical condition while it's certainly um, nice to think that you're doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing by the individual it's really not a good idea to start playing that game and making decisions based on your own perceptions of what they need or what they should be doing and that really gets us into category D uh, in the EEOC's updated guidance dealing with reasonable accommodations. So in this section, the EEOC has answered a few questions as well when it comes to reasonable accommodations. When does an employer have to give them? When can it avoid giving them? Uh, and so in a situation where employees are returning to work, and if a person's job may only be performed at the workplace, in other words, it can't be um, something that is done through telecommuting, are there reasonable accommodations that could still offer protection to an individual who is at a higher risk for COVID-19? And the answer is a blanket one from the EEOC. As a general rule, the EEOC takes the position that there may be reasonable accommodations that could offer protections to an individual who has an underlying disability that puts him or her at a greater risk from COVID-19 and therefore needs some action to be taken to eliminate potential exposure. Again, we're not talking about situations where somebody just has a generalized fear you know I'm, I'm worried about going back into public I'm worried about coming into the workplace because I'm just generally 
afraid like everybody else of catching this virus. We're talking about, again, individuals with disabilities. Uh, and that could also mean, in certain circumstances, uh, mental disabilities. It does not just have to be a physical condition. Um, but even though the pandemic imposes some limitations and some restrictions on employers, whether from a monetary standpoint or otherwise, there are some accommodations that may meet an employee's needs even on a temporary basis that an employer would have to provide absent proof of an undue hardship. Um, temporary job restructuring of marginal job duties, temporary transfers to a different position, modifying work schedules or shift assignments. Again, these are examples that the EEOC gives um, as potential accommodations that may permit an individual with a disability to perform the essential functions of the job safely while at the same time reducing, reducing exposure to uh, others in the workplace or even while the individual is commuting to and from work. You want to just make sure at the end of the day that you're not making unilateral decisions and that you are engaging in some type of interactive process. There's no real definition as to what questions have to be asked or uh, how long or what the duration is of any interactive process, but there should be some initial discussion so that you as an employer are asking questions to determine first as a threshold matter whether there is a disability here in play that requires further steps or may require further steps to be taken and then once that threshold issue is determined uh, that there is a discussion with the employee of some duration uh, as to how a requested accommodation might assist him or her uh, to enable the employee to keep working. Maybe you're going to explore alternative accommodations. Maybe you don't have to explore alternative accommodations. I guess my point is, is that there is no one-size-fits-all here. Don't just make blanket statements, blanket perceptions and assumptions, but consider on an individualized basis what may need to be done in a particular situation. Uh, as I said a moment ago, there also is this notion that if there is an undue hardship, uh, you won't necessarily have to provide an accommodation to the uh, individual. There has always been a very high standard for employers to demonstrate the existence of an undue hardship. Now, it, it very well may be that in the current uh, coronavirus pandemic, in some respects, it may be easier for employers to prove an undue hardship defense, uh, maybe from a financial standpoint. And, you know, cost issues have always been difficult for employers to rely on solely as, their, as the basis of their undue hardship defense. But in these times, uh, finances are a lot different than they are in normal times. And so perhaps cost alone or cost together with other factors may provide you as a company the basis for an undue hardship defense depending on the accommodation requested by an individual. But again, try to engage in some individualized consideration internally in your organization and with the uh, employee himself or herself to determine what works and what may not work. 
Are you, if an employee requests an accommodation for some medical condition, either in the workplace or at home, are you as an employer able to still request information to determine that threshold issue, to determine if the individual has a condition that constitutes a disability? And the answer is the same as it has been uh, under regular ADA law. If it is not obvious, if it is not already known, yes, an employer can ask questions or can request medical documentation to determine whether the employee has a disability under the ADA in the first place. It's also worth noting here, like I do so often, that we're talking about the EEOC, we're talking about the ADA, which necessarily means we're talking about federal law. So many states, so many other cities and local jurisdictions have their own disability discrimination statutes, reasonable accommodation statutes and regulations. So in whatever jurisdiction you may be in, uh, wherever your employees may be working, you also want to consult uh, the state and local laws that may apply to this situation and impose certain obligations on you as well. Okay, so we are moving right along. And uh, continuing this discussion in this Category D in the EEOC guidance, uh, the EEOC addresses, as I just said, are there particular circumstances when a requested accommodation can be denied because it poses an undue hardship? As I said a few moments ago, yes. The employer does not have to provide a particular reasonable accommodation if it does pose an undue hardship. Uh, and the nature of that undue hardship may be different in this pandemic situation, but it's something that you do have to analyze, and you do have to realize, I think, that even if the standard for undue hardship is relaxed ever so slightly, uh, you, just from a perception standpoint, uh, you want to make sure that the argument that you're making um, might pass muster for a court, for a jury, for an arbitrator. Uh, give some thought to the argument that you're making uh, in terms of accepting or rejecting a reasonable accommodation request. Some people have also asked whether all of these requirements, the ADA, um, the reasonable accommodation and interactive process requirements, whether they apply to individuals who are classified as essential workers or critical infrastructure workers. The EEOC makes it clear that the answer to that is yes even though certain employees are being designated uh, as essential workers or critical infrastructure workers, that does not mean that the ADA or the Rehabilitation Act or any other EEO laws cease to apply to those individuals. So now we move on to Category E in the EEOC's most recent guidance. And that deals with pandemic-related harassment due to national origin, race, or other protected characteristics. And if you look at some of the statistics that have come out, uh, both from the EEOC, but as well as from other state anti-discrimination uh, agencies, uh, you will see a significant rise in uh, harassment and discrimination and retaliation complaints from certain protected groups. Uh, maybe they are uh, individuals who are Asian Americans. Maybe they are individuals who are of a certain age. Uh, and we are starting to see and read about employers and managers and supervisors at those workplaces um, who are engaging in unlawful harassment, 
discrimination and retaliation based on the protected characteristics that potentially have been getting a lot of press during this pandemic. Uh, even if your employees are not at work, remember that the rules relating to harassment, discrimination, and retaliation apply to electronic communications, apply in many cases to social media communications. So the virtual world that we all live in, the virtual water cooler that many of us are uh, speaking at, uh, does not mean that the uh, rules of the road that we've lived with and have tried to train employees on for the past several years no longer exist. So the EEOC put this category in just to remind uh, employers that there are practical tools that are available to reduce and address workplace harassment that may arise specifically out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the EEOC has reminded companies that uh, EEOC.gov is itself a resource for various reports, checklists, charts, statistics, um, policy guidance, best practices, training um, uh, forms and policies that employers can use as a resource when trying to make sure that the workplace is one where employees are returning to uh, a harassment and discrimination free workplace. It's important, the EEOC reminds employers as well, that organizations remind all of their employees uh, certainly now, but uh, even more particularly when employees start to return to the physical workplace, uh, to remind all employees, all managers, all supervisors that federal EEO laws prohibit discrimination and harassment based on protected characteristics such as race, national origin, sex, color, age, disability, genetic information, and a whole variety of other protected classes. Category F, as in Frank, uh, is really one question long in the EEOC's new guidance. It deals with furloughs and layoffs, and it's really more of a reminder uh, to those who are reading the guidance than it is breaking any news. Uh, the one question it addresses is whether there are waiver and release responsibilities and obligations when an employer is conducting layoffs. Uh, again, the answer is yes, and this is more of a reminder than creating any new obligation. Certainly, um, for from the federal law standpoint, if you are terminating an individual who is 40 years of age or older, there's certain language, certain um, information that has to be provided in a waiver or release agreement. If you are laying off uh, a group, more than two or two or more individuals, uh, any of whom are 40 years old or older, there has to be also certain disclosures about those layoffs that have to be given um, in exchange for the release and waiver. Uh, though not necessarily a federal EEOC issue, it's also worth me noting that many states, New York and elsewhere around the country, uh, have imposed additional uh, disclosure requirements, additional consideration periods, additional language that must be put in certain separation agreements when you're having a release and a waiver for things like confidentiality uh, and other types of issues. So again, this is really just a reminder from the EEOC and a reminder for me that when you are laying off uh, or furloughing or outright terminating individuals, whether individually or as a group, 
you want to give consideration to specific language that may need to be included in those agreements. And then lastly, Category G in the EEOC's new guidance uh, deals with the return to work issues. And so it addresses questions such as the following. If an employer is requiring that returning workers wear PPE, personal protective equipment, uh, and engage in certain types of infection control practices, what happens if employees ask for an accommodation? Must the employer grant those requests? And where you're typically going to see those requests are going to be either on the disability front or on the religious front. And the answer is perhaps you have to. You certainly, and we tell you all the time, when you are instituting protocols and policies, whether it's for protective gear, masks, gloves, and other types of equipment, you want to apply all of that consistently. But probably the biggest caveat to that is when somebody requests an accommodation and ultimately needs an accommodation, you may have to give an accommodation to that otherwise consistently implemented policy. So perhaps as the EEOC suggests an individual with a disability may need to have a reasonable accommodation. Maybe they need non-latex gloves. Maybe they need to have a modified face mask or some specific gown designed for an individual who use a wheelchair. There may also be a religious-based accommodation request, perhaps such as modified equipment or modified uh, personal gear that must be given due to religious beliefs or religious garb that is otherwise being worn by the employee. So as I said before, when it comes to your normal disability accommodation requests, here the employer should not just make decisions uh, based on a you know unilateral perception or decision, the employer should give some consideration to the individualized nature of the situation and the individualized nature of the request. The EEOC also talks about what obligations an employee might have. What does an employee have to do in order to request a reasonable accommodation from the uh, company because he or she has one of the medical conditions that a CDC that the CDC says may put him or her at a higher risk of severe illness from COVID-19. As I said before, uh, it is not in the company's best interest to unilaterally make decisions based on the perception that somebody needs an accommodation because he or she falls in a higher risk bucket. In these situations, the EEOC advises that the employee or a third party on the employee's behalf, such as a, a healthcare provider, has to first let the company know that the employee needs some sort of accommodation for some reason related to a medical condition. The uh, request for accommodation does not have to be in writing. It can be in writing or it can be uh, made orally. And while the employee or that third party does not need to use the term reasonable accommodation specifically or even reference the ADA specifically, certainly the employee or the third party can do so. After receiving the request in whatever form, the employer then, according to the EEOC's updated guidance, can continue to ask questions or seek medical documentation 
to help decide as a threshold matter if that individual does have a disability and then after that if there is a reasonable accommodation that can be provided absent some undue hardship and specifically to the situation that I mentioned about whether employers should make decisions based on their own perception the final question in the EEOC's guidance here, well, really the second to last question, I lied. Uh, the EEOC says, uh, the CDC identifies a number of medical conditions that might place individuals at higher risk for severe illness if they do get COVID-19. An employer knows that an employee has one of those conditions and is concerned that his health will be jeopardized upon returning to the workplace, but the employee has not requested accommodation. How does the ADA apply to this situation? Well, the EEOC makes clear that if the employee does not request a reasonable accommodation, the ADA does not mandate that the employer take action. And that, again, is consistent with what I've been saying now, which is do not just assume that a reasonable accommodation is needed, or worse, do not take some action that impacts the employee based on that assumption. If the employer is concerned about the employee's health perhaps being jeopardized by returning to the workplace or being put in some other situation, the ADA does not allow the employer to exclude the employee or take any other negative action against that employee solely because the employee has a disability or a condition that the CDC has identified as placing that individual in a higher risk category. You need to go through an individualized determination for that situation. And that really is the big takeaway here. The big takeaway, understand that the rules of the road when it comes to harassment, discrimination, retaliation, interactive processes, and reasonable accommodation requests, there may be some unique aspects that have been prompted by this particular COVID-19 pandemic. But don't forget that you need to give consideration to those obligations and to those laws. And make sure as well that when you are making decisions, while at the same time you're making decisions that apply to your workforce across the board, there may be situations that have to apply solely to specific individuals who need some individualized consideration. So. That's the EEOC's updated guidance, updated as of May 7th, 2020, and you know, who knows, in a couple of days, this whole episode will be outdated because everything's changed. I don't know. I'm being a little bit facetious. Obviously, uh, the guidance that the EEOC has provided uh, will likely be in place uh, and be good guidance for some time, but it does really still highlight this notion that uh, in addition to everything that I've said, you want to keep your eyes and ears open because so much is changing. So much will continue to change over the coming days and the coming weeks. And where are you best going to be positioned to hear about those changes, hear from people who are trying to implement and also understand those changes? Come on, say it out loud with me. Employment Law Now. That's right. We will continue to keep you updated on everything COVID-19 related and maybe every once in a while throw in an episode having nothing to do with COVID-19 just because you want to talk about something else. 
That is all I have for right now. Again, as I've said, I hope you, your families, and your colleagues continue to stay safe, healthy, and sane. Uh, please let me know by email uh, if you have any topics that you'd love to have addressed here on Employment Law Now. If you are interested in what my firm, Cozen O'Connor, is doing, as I've also said before, we have a coronavirus task force. You can find it at Cozen.com and look for the Coronavirus Task Force banner. Click on that and you will find a significant amount of links to resources, alerts, best practices, checklists for returning to work, uh, links to our prior webinars, all kinds of great things that will hopefully keep you informed as things continue to develop. Until the next time, thank you always, as always, so much for listening, and I hope all of your labor is productive.